So if you have been with us this weekend through our Maundy Thursday celebration uh, and our uh, Good Friday Tenebrae celebration, uh, you know that we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, the last couple of chapters of Mark this year, uh, looking at Mark's uh, introduction of the Last Supper and uh, the introduction of communion and the Lord's Supper, looking at Mark's account of uh, Jesus's Uh, arrest and trial and crucifixion and burial, and so it makes good sense to finish out in Mark uh, the the account of the gospel that Mark shares for us. So our, our scripture reading is from Mark chapters 15 and 16. I'm gonna back up a little bit and read the last passage that was read for us during the Good Friday service. And then just to kind of remind us of where we are, and then read through and include uh, the first nine verses of chapter 16. So if you would, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, if you are able. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, And Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers and the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So the, the title is a little odd, The Verifiable 
good news. Um, and the reason I, I call it that is because um, the gospel, gospel just means good news. It means something has happened and it's good. Uh, it's good news. It's pretty straightforward. But sometimes we use gospel and we, and we forget that it's a very simple word that has to do with news of something that happened that was good. And we turn it into just sort of this spiritual truth. The gospel is just about how I feel or the gospel is about my faith in something good. But the gospel itself is simply, here's something that happened. It's good. And in fact, uh, Paul explains it that way in the end of his first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. So whatever this good news is, it's something that you receive. It's already good news and it's there for you to receive and it it has an impact on you. It changes you. It's, it's something in which you stand and by which you are being saved. And so then, here it is also, this gospel actually saves you from something. That's, that's very good news. If you hold fast to the word that I preached, unless you believed in vain. And so now he goes on to explain what is the gospel. And he says, I delivered to you as of first importance importance, what I also received. So now Paul is saying, it's not just something I'm making up. I heard the good news. I had to receive this good news myself as well. And what is the good news? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Perhaps you know the story of Paul's meeting of Jesus. Paul before he had met Jesus, actually despised the church and hated the message of the good news, refused to believe that this man was, in fact, the Son of God and had risen from the dead. And he was actually a persecutor and despiser of the church. And yet Christ appeared to him on, on a very mission where he was going to arrest some in the church. And yet Christ appeared to him and he was saved. And so he saw the risen Christ himself. When we talk about the truths of the gospel, there's four irrefutable facts that every historian, whether a Christian or non-Christian, agrees on. Four facts that require some answer when they are put together. The first fact is that there was a man named Jesus from Nazareth who lived in Israel and he was crucified on a cross and died. Now we, 2,000 years later, have the 
I guess, privilege of claiming these things can't be true. But the fact of the death of Jesus was never disputed in the first centuries. Certainly not disputed in the first decades after his death. Every historian agreed that there was a man named Jesus who was executed on a Roman cross. The second fact that every historian agreed to was that the tomb in which this man Jesus was laid is empty. The body of Jesus is not where Joseph put him. Every historian agrees to that. That's a, that's a pretty verifiable fact, isn't it? I mean, if I tell you somebody stole my bed while I was sleeping right out from under me and it's gone, you can go look in my bedroom. And if my bed is there, you could say, well, Leonard, nobody stole your bed. If my bed is gone, then you might wonder at my explanation that someone stole it in the middle of the night while I was sleeping in it. But you can't deny that my bed is missing. No historian denied that the tomb in which Jesus was laid was empty. These are just truths, historical truths. Truth number three, Jesus' followers believed that Jesus rose from the dead, that the empty tomb was a proof that Jesus had risen from the dead, and in fact, many claimed to be eyewitnesses personally of the resurrected Jesus. These are historical facts. No historian disagrees that the followers of Jesus almost immediately, I say almost because for at least three days they did not, but almost immediately bore witness or claim that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead and many of them claimed to be eyewitnesses having seen him themselves. That's not, that's not in question that his followers did that. And then the fourth truth that is irrefutable that we even see today is that people's lives were so impacted by these first three truths that they were willing to be beaten, they were willing to be arrested, they were willing to die instead of admit it was all made up. And even today, not ourselves being eyewitnesses, there are still people willing to be beaten and arrested and even die rather than refute or deny those three truths. These four things are absolutely true. And so, just in a lesson of logic, there needs to be 
a reasonable explanation for how these four things can actually be true, all of them together, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. If one and two aren't true, you need an explanation for number three, for the eyewitness accounts, for the 500 at one time, and you need an explanation for sure of number four, that not that, I mean, it's easy to fool people about things that happened a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, but the willingness of being persecuted and killed for these three statements began within one decade of Jesus' death and resurrection. Stephen, the first martyr recorded in Acts, is willing to die rather than refute the facts of this good news. This last account of Mark's really in many ways lays out those truths. Mark takes great pains to explain that Christ died, that Christ is risen, and that that changes everything. So first, the verifiable death of Jesus. And I know this sounds like, why do we need to go through this? What's the, what is the point of this? But Mark, makes, Mark spends more time explaining the death of Jesus than he does the resurrection of Jesus. Like he goes to great detail. He lists, if we go back to verse 39, he lists the centurion at the base of the cross, commenting, an eyewitness of the death of Jesus. The centurion says something about his death, says that in the manner, he sees the manner in which Jesus dies and says, surely this must have been the Son of God. And then we're told of three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome. Salome is the mother of James and John, two of Jesus' disciples. These are also witnesses of Jesus' death. Next, he records a conversation between Joseph of Arimathea and Pilate. So Joseph is an eyewitness of the death of Jesus. And then Pilate, the governing official at the time, is told that Jesus has died. He's surprised that he's dead already. But then he calls in the centurion. So then the centurion comes back in. The authority on death on the cross would be the centurions who oversaw them on a regular basis. So he would know if this man were dead and he verifies that he's dead. And then finally we return to the women who watched not only his death, but watched as Joseph and others took Jesus's body from the cross, watched as they laid him in a tomb and watched as Joseph and others rolled this stone in front of the tomb. Putting a stone in front of the tomb was, was only something that the wealthy could do. Uh, usually no one could, you couldn't afford that. All you could afford, if anything, you could afford a, a family tomb and you just kind of hoped or asked people to help kind of guard the tomb so that there wouldn't be grave robbers. 
But the wealthy could actually afford to put stones in front of their family tombs in order to protect from those things. Mark is establishing a verifiable fact that Jesus died. He had died. He even does this, as we read on Friday night, through the naming of this guy named Simon who carries the cross for Jesus. Do you ever wonder why? I mean, it's an honor now that we look back on it. It's like, well, I'd want, I mean, I'd want to know who that was. That's pretty cool that, that they knew this man's name. This was, this was Simon of Cyrene. And we don't just know his name. We actually learn that he's Simon. He's from the country, and he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, you have, to, you have to walk with me a little bit to hear what Mark is doing here. So Mark wrote his gospel account from Rome. So he was living in Rome probably around 50 A.D. So again, we're about maybe 10, 20 years after the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And so he's in Rome and he's writing. Now, Paul writes a letter to the church in Rome around 57, so about seven years after, after Mark wrote his gospel account. And if, you, if you've read some of Paul's letters, you know that there's a lot of times there's like he gives the whole shout-outs to my boys at the end of his letters. He's like, hey, say hey to this guy, say hey to this guy, tell this person I want my coat back, uh, all these things that he goes into. But in, in Romans, he does this, and he says, greet Rufus, Chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who, have been, who has been a mother to me as well. Mark mentions in Mark 15, hey, there is this guy named Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. He carried Jesus' cross. If you are wondering if any of these things that I'm telling you are true, ask Rufus. He can tell you. Ask his mother. She can tell you. These things happened just as I wrote them. He's offering eyewitness, eyewitnesses and authorities who can verify that Jesus did, in fact, die. Joseph is a respected member of the Sanhedrin. Pilate is the governor of the area. The centurion is an expert on death and execution. And then these women... And we'll get back to the women, but he includes the women here as well to establish the fact that Jesus was dead. One of the many theories around the appearance of a resurrection is this idea that Jesus just swooned. He just kind of passed out. I mean, if, if it were Miracle Max, he'd say he was just mostly dead. He wasn't all dead. But this, this idea that he just fainted apparently fooled everyone. Everyone thought he was dead. And by being laid in a tomb that was sealed, that was somehow very reviving. And so when he came out, he didn't come out dehydrated and hungry and weak from all of his wounds. That, that three-day rest, like he came out rejuvenated. It was like a spa getaway. He was just, he was ready for action. Like that makes that makes no sense whatsoever. 
especially after, after reading what we read on Friday night. Like, yes, Pilate is surprised that he's dead already, but remember, like just backing up, the, the two thieves also were dead immediately because they broke their legs to make sure they would die quickly. But Jesus, they didn't need to break his legs because Thursday night was the last time he had eaten. And he walked from Jerusalem to the garden, which is an uphill, strenuous walk. Then he's arrested at night and he walks back down the hill, back down the mountain to the high priest's house, and he's put on trial, and he's beaten, and his, his beard is pulled out, and he's smacked around, and then he walks from Annas' Anus, house to Caiaphas' house, and put on trial again, and beaten on some more. And then he's thrown in a dungeon under the house until morning. And then early Friday morning, he walks to the governor's palace, We know it's early because he's crucified at 9 a.m. So before 9 a.m., he is walking to the governor's palace. He has to walk from the governor's palace to Herod's place of uh, residence in Jerusalem, then walks back to the governor's palace, somewhere in there being beaten and scourged and whipped with a whip that has shards of bone and glass and metal in it. He has a a heavy robe thrown on his back that is now covered in blood. He has a crown of thorns pressed on his head. He's hit on the head with the reed, with those crown. Then that robe is ripped back off of his bloody back. His clothes are put back on. He's handed his cross and told to carry it. He falls under the weight of his cross and can't even carry the cross. It is not unusual that Jesus died so soon. It is unusual that one would say, oh, he just swooned and after a couple days rest, he was fine. That would be ridiculous. There was never any denying Jesus' death. That wasn't supposed to be the surprising part of the story. That wasn't the part where people were supposed to say, "Uh, what? No, the part of the, the surprise in the story is He rose from the dead. Christ is risen. In the span of eight verses, these women are mentioned three times. Why? Because Mark is establishing an eyewitness account. These women watched Jesus get crucified. They watched him die. They watched him get buried. And now they have witnessed that he is no longer in that grave. In one sense, again, Mark is saying, ask them. Go ask them. This was only 20 years ago. But the interesting thing is these women weren't coming like thinking they had the honor of being the first witnesses of the resurrection, did they? Like That's not why they were going to the grave. They weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. The disciples weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. The 12 closest disciples were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. Which now, again, 2,000 years of reading this story sometimes feels a little upsetting. 
Because just in the book of Mark, Jesus talks about rising from the dead at least four times. In 8.31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Mark even adds that, and he said this plainly. In chapter 9, verse 9, it says, As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. In 9.31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. In 10.32, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, if Mark, the shortest of the gospel accounts, who would have obviously left many of Jesus' teachings out, like he doesn't have the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't have other things that other gospel writers have, if he is just giving us a sampling of Jesus' teaching, and toward the end of his ministry, Jesus, at least four times in writing, tells his disciples in no uncertain terms, I'm going to be killed By crucifixion, I will die, and I will rise again. If he records four of those, there's no reason to not think Jesus didn't tell them. There's a lot of negatives in that sentence. Wow, I'm sorry about that. We should have every expectation that Jesus told them regularly, and they just didn't get it. They were not expecting a resurrection. The, the, The oddity of a resurrection... In a Messiah story, like nobody, there were many Messiahs or saviors of Israel in that first century. And when they died, their disciples stopped. They're like, well, that was fun. I should probably get back to work. When Jesus dies, It's not expected that he is going to rise from the dead. Everyone has known since Abel died in Genesis 4, you don't rise from the dead. The whole point of resurrections, of coming back to life throughout the Old Testament, the the very rare occasions under Elijah's ministry and Elisha's ministry, or even with Christ as he raised uh, young girls and, and others from the dead and Lazarus. The whole point was this doesn't happen. That's miraculous. By the way, each of them, when they were raised from the dead, they all have something in common. They died again. They got to do that twice. That's why when we confess our faith, we say, He is risen. It's not just that He rose, it's that He is risen. And I've talked about this before. You don't don't say, I was married, talking about your current spouse. That sounds weird. Because your marriage 
was a thing that happened that had ongoing significance. You are married. That's why in, in Reformed circles, we don't talk about when we were saved. We talk about being saved. I am saved. It almost doesn't matter so much when I was saved. It, what matters is that I am saved, that Christ saved me, and it has a, a thing that happened in the past that has eternal ongoing significance. Christ is risen. That's why we say, He is risen. And you say, Right. We don't say, He rose. He sure did. Hallelujah. What? That doesn't, who cares? What matters is that He is alive now. Unlike any other resurrection, His lasted forever. No one expected the resurrection. Now, if this was a story that was being made up, wouldn't it be a more credible story if you at least had a couple of the disciples paying attention to what He said? Wouldn't it be a more credible story if, if Sunday morning, Peter and John looked at each other and said, hey, you know, we should just double check. I mean, he did tell us several times that this was going to happen. And I mean, it is, it's the third day. Well, I mean, I'm not doing anything. What are you, let's, I mean, we may as well go check. Or even the women. The, okay, so fine, let's give it to the women. And they go, and they're like, hey, let's go. Let's be the first ones. Let's see. No, they're, they're saying, let's bury him. Let's finish what was hastily done. Let's prepare his body for the tomb. Nobody expected Jesus to rise from the dead. If this were made up, it would, it would be ridiculous to make that part up. And in fact, it would be ridiculous that the first eyewitnesses would be women. Because in that century... Much like the 21st century, women's opinions didn't matter. I'm just, just seeing if you're still here. Just check in. Just seeing if you're paying attention. So in that first century, like, they, like women's, like, they couldn't be the only witnesses in court because they're so emotional and they, they just, oh, they blow everything out of proportion. And even the disciples agree with that in other accounts where they go and tell the disciples, they're like, Oh, okay. Peter and John, go see what they're talking about. There was, a, there was a Greek skeptic who wrote in the second century who pointed to the women as the eyewitnesses as why he didn't believe in the resurrection, because he didn't believe the women's account. Now again, if you were making this up in a society where no one's going to believe the women, why would you say... The only first witnesses were women, and yeah, none of us believed them either, just like you're thinking. Like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that unless maybe it was true. Why make something silly like that up? Even the idea of the stolen body, in Matthew it's recorded for us, but, but that's, a, like that's a pretty popular, the body was stolen. Now, if you're going to invent this story, why out of the gate give another option why out of the gate say or you know maybe the body was stolen i mean the only reason they would say that is because that happened and they knew it wasn't true they don't care to that they're offering you a second explanation 
Christ died. Christ is risen. And lives are changed. Notice some things that aren't told to the disciples or or to the women. Well, the women were disciples as well, so I don't want to separate between the two. You know, Jesus, when he appears, he doesn't say, okay, idiots. So here we are, you weak, miserable excuses for disciples. I have told you ad nauseum this was going to happen. Now grovel. Get down. He didn't say, all right, well, I'm back, but I'm going to have to see some proof. Show me your faith. Go, go to Galilee, and I'll decide whether I'm coming. The announcement is, Jesus is going before you. Jesus is going before you. You'll see me. Tell the disciples and Peter. I think that's like one of the top ten of my favorite verses. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Because Peter knew how much he had screwed up. Here's Peter. Even if everyone else falls away, I will, I will die before I fall away. He even thinks he's proving it in the garden. He pulls out his sword and he's like, this is it, guys. This is our opportunity. We said we would do this. And he goes and he's not a soldier, so he misses the guy's head and chops his ear off. And, and Jesus is like, what are you doing? What are you doing? So in a crowd, an angry mob, P- Peter's, he's the strong man. And then at the fire, in front of a little girl, he can't even admit he knows Jesus. And in Luke, we're told, as he's denying him the third time, Jesus is being led out, and they make eye contact. And the angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It changed Peter. I mean, he, he grew into, in many ways, the name Christ gave him. I mean, he wasn't the rock when, even when Jesus told him he was the rock. One sentence later, Jesus called him Satan because he didn't understand the importance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. For our sins. And we started this way Thursday. If you feel like there's no possible way Jesus could ever take you back, it is the point of the gospel that Christ died for our sins. He rose conquering 
the power of our sin so that we could be forgiven, healed, justified by Him, not by our excuses, but justified by Jesus. The end of Mark tells us sinners will be saved. The fact that Mark is willing to continue to say they still didn't believe tells us this good news is for sinners and skeptics. The message is for a world of sinners. Jesus Christ came not just for a small first century Roman occupied nation. Jesus Christ came for the whole of creation. Peter, the most public denier of Jesus, became the first public evangelist for Jesus. Peter, the one who couldn't admit to a, to a middle school girl that he knew Jesus, is the voice that God uses to bring over 3,000 to Christ in one day. And his text was our call to worship about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The weak disciples became the apostles who did many and more signs that even Jesus did. They raised the dead. They healed the sick. They cast out demons. And they were delivered over and over and over to death because of their faith in Jesus. I mean, Paul in chapter 15, like, he goes on and just says, look, like, if this is just some kind of thing we, we do, like Jesus is alive in our hearts, he says, well, then we are the biggest fools in the world. Like, what are you doing wasting your Easter here when you could be home with chocolate eggs and, and ham and all the trappings of, of, you know, traditions without any of the bother of the, how long is he going to keep talking? What is the point? Why would we, why would we do this just because it, it feels good? And he says, and you know what? If Christ isn't raised from the dead... We have no hope then. I mean, he argues it from the other direction. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't raised from the dead. And if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then all of your loved ones who have died are dead. And this is it. And what is the point? And so eat and drink and be merry because you'll die soon too. If our hope is only for today, then it is a hopeless, helpless hope. But Christ is raised from the dead, the first fruits. And because Christ is raised, we know we will be raised 
we know our loved ones will be raised. The hope that we have is in Christ or else there is no hope. It's why, it's why we named the church Hope of Christ. If your hope is not from Christ, then it is a futile hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you endured the cross on our behalf, on our place, and you conquered death for us. You are risen. And we will rise again. You are risen. And sin will one day have no sway over us. You are risen. And so we need not fear death. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.